Welcome back at IDH Podcasts. My name is Imru Ares. In last month's episode, we heard from Carla Romeo Dalmau on what is needed to drive change in international trade based on the five dimensions described in our book, Collaborative Transformation. This month, we hear from the field as Richard Fairburn talks us through his personal experiences and lessons learned as senior advisor in many of IDHT programs. My name is Richard Fairburn. I've been working for the last eight years as a senior advisor to IDH. Previous to that, I worked uh, with Unilever. I ran Unilever's tier states in both Kenya and Tanzania. I had a lot of sustainability uh, programs uh, in my time with Unilever. I was always part of Unilever's steering group for sustainable agriculture. When I left Unilever, I decided that I wanted to make a difference, put something back, particularly in Africa. And uh, almost by chance, I met uh, Yoast from IDH. In 2011, I started a formal contract uh, with IDH, uh, advising them on all things sustainable, particularly in tea. With Unilever, I had a, a business which had 24,000 employees at the time, with all their dependents and everything that goes with uh, a major town, houses, hospitals, managing uh, social activities for the workforce, to get together with about 4,000 acres of natural forest between the two businesses. And we had a sustainable fuel uh, operation. We created our own fuel wood for the factories. We had three hydroelectric power stations generating electricity for the factories. So we were very sustainable. And, and I thought this was something that I could take forward with IDH and, and take sustainability to the next level with uh, other growers and workers around the world. With tea, some of the major sustainability issues are not necessarily intractable, but they are global and they are systemic um, and will take more than just one organisation or one sector to actually start to resolve them. When you think about issues like uh, low wages, women in the workplace, environmental care, the use of pesticides, all these issues cannot be resolved by one individual organisation. So bringing stakeholders together who have an interest in this area is absolutely crucial. And these, those stakeholders will actually come at the problems from a different perspective. To actually manage those perspectives and get people all facing in the same direction and making uh, progress together towards the resolution of these, uh, these problems, you need a neutral convener. So at first, when I started my role with IDH, I would often have maybe a Unilever hat on or a producer's hat on, but increasingly I've had to uh, become totally neutral. And I've done that by actually spending a lot of time uh, with individual stakeholders, trying to uh, understand their point of view, empathising with where they're coming from and making sure I can hear their views and their issues in a risk-free environment when we actually get all the stakeholders together, um, as we do quite regularly for the IDH programmes. My experience over the last eight years indicates that there are many challenges in terms of having a neutral convening role. Finding the common ground and developing a risk-free environment for people to speak up is really important. And, and that's about chairmanship in a way, is making sure that everybody has a chance to put their views on the table, but making sure that nobody is attacked when they put a, a, what could be for one stakeholder a contentious issue out there. Practical tips for finding the common ground is that you have to be able to empathise yourself with all the stakeholders in the group. And that takes uh, quite a lot of personal effort. 
talking to people not just in the room, but actually separately to make sure you understand exactly where they're coming from. And at the same time, trying to get them to see the world in a different way, particularly to understand the perspective of, of other stakeholders. So that when you actually come to a meeting, the convention, if you like, people are actually aware of how others feel, how what it means to others in terms of their organisation and their businesses. And that makes uh, it easier to find at least some common ground to debate and, and makes it more risk-free for the, for the people around the room. If I give the example of India, in India, the producers were very nervous about a sustainable code for tea because they thought it would actually increase their costs um, and uh, make them less competitive versus people that didn't take trustee as, uh, as a serious option. But what they didn't really understand is that on one hand, the commercial partners were going to sell trustee teas. One or two of the partners were going to sell exclusively trustee teas. So the producers could be excluding themselves for over 50% of the market, but also the fact that uh, sustainability for a tea producer is about them being able to leave their tea estate or the, their small tea farm sustainable for the future for their children and their children's children. Now, once you get over that hurdle of, of the producer understanding this isn't a threat, but it's actually on one hand an opportunity, but also a business need, you start to uh, you create understanding. And then when the commercial partners talk about their programs, the producer understands it in a lot more detail. We need to understand who's playing for what states as well. That, for me, is really important because in Malawi, the producers are playing for the very survival of their businesses, whereas the not-for-profit organisations are playing for the well-being of workers, their families and small farmers, but we need to guard against the unintended consequences of what that may bring. For example, in Kenya, where wages became unsustainably high, there was a huge push for mechanisation and large job losses. In South Africa, where wages became too high for the industry down there, basically the South African tea business collapsed and, uh, and failed. So we have to understand that these unintended consequences need to be managed. In the Malawi program, it dawned on me rather later than it should have done uh, that uh, the producers were at risk of uh, losing much more than any other stakeholder. And the stakes they were playing for were the, was the, the, the future of their businesses, the jobs for their workers, and their business competitiveness. Whereas other stakeholders were their only risk really was reputation and maybe funding. So it, it seemed to me that there was one stakeholder sat around that table that had so much to lose that we should understand that before an unintended consequence actually emerged. So I tried as personally and through the with the IDH team to point out to uh, certain stakeholders, if we push too hard here, we could actually endanger the entire industry. And having seen it happen in Kenya with huge job losses, in a way, in an industry which was very um, labour intensive, if that happened in Malawi, where there are less jobs on offer for people who are in the tea industry currently, one of the poorest countries in Africa, that would be a disaster. And certainly the government of Malawi would not favour tea producers moving to mechanised harvesting, for example, at the expense of jobs. So there, there, there's an example where 
making sure everybody understands the risks to each stakeholder was really a really important part of my job and the IDH job of convening to make sure everybody understood. If I'm honest, it was easier to persuade the not-for-profit organisations within the stakeholder group because they realised that job losses in terms of their world and, and, and providing employment and fair wages was really, really important. Uh, it's been more difficult, I think, to persuade the commercial stakeholders that um, you know, staying in Malawi, buying Malawian teas at any price to fund a journey towards living wages has been more difficult. Fortunately, in Malawi, the producers have been quite open in terms of uh, information. So we've have, we have a model which actually can predict what the move to living wages will mean for production costs for producers as you move forward. So compounded annual increase to, in wages and what that does to the cost of production in Malawi is quite scary. Because when you get into 2022, 20, 23, 24, you can see if we're not careful, Malawian producers may well lose most of their competitive advantages. And then uh, commercial buyers will have to move somewhere else because the Malawi teas will be far too expensive for the quality that they offer. So I think uh, using real data provided in a risk-free environment by one of the stakeholders is really important in terms of persuading the rest. Um, dealing with divergent timescales has been a, a real challenge, particularly in Malawi, where the issue of living wages is a reputational risk for the commercial partners today, now, whereas to rehabilitate, revitalise the entire industry is a 10-year task. And how do you manage uh, timescales which uh, on one hand is so immediate, on the other hand is so long-term? Uh, again, it's about parties empathising with each other but because the fix has to be quick for the commercial partners, you have to persuade them that some progress every year is just as important as a quick fix. My experience in life is if you can explain to a, a concerned party or a dissenter that you're making progress, they're likely to give you credit for that rather than to uh, criticise. Uh, and, and then you can then argue with the, the producer who has the long time scale, that it's not, it's not something they should fear, but people are supporting them to make progress with their sustainability, growing better quality tea, actually irrigating their tea, maybe rehabilitating their factories, and they will be given time to do it as long as progress is observed as, uh, as they go forward. One of the things we can be most proud of, I think, is the, the progress with wages in Malawi. Although the living wage target seems still aspirational and a long way into the future. The fact that when we started the programme, tea workers were earning the notified minimum wage from the government, and today they're earning more than 50% more than that notified minimum wage, I think that the programme can take great credit from that. And maybe that's the KPI that we should be focusing on, rather than a very long-term aspirational target. There are other challenges about the individual organisations and the individual players in each of these uh, convening groups. For example, what do you do when somebody has a, a very large personal ego or somebody who wants to take uh, a bigger share of the action than, than another stakeholder? Um, for example, commercial funders demanding a greater say in a programme because they're part funders but have an equal voice 
with other stakeholders who maybe contribute in a, in a, in a, in a slightly different way. And another challenge of convening is you have to be very careful that personal agendas don't overspill into, into the convention. And it's happened a couple of times where either through personal targets, which are driving behavior of uh, some of the stakeholders, or the wish to say more about the program than we're ready to say because column inches are, are important to certain not-for-profit organizations. The fact that um, somebody's promotion may actually revolve around the success of a program or their personal target bonus. We have to keep that off the table at all times. And so what you have to do is you have to make sure that everybody in the room is focused on the program, the workforce, the environment, small farmers, rather than what drives them every day, which might be quite different in terms of their own personal ambition. For any convener, humility is really important. Because if you are seen as the, the person that's driving the entire program, then it, all of a sudden it becomes your program. If I was starting a new program tomorrow with tea or, or any other commodity, I think that one of the most important things must be to understand what your stakeholder group should look like. For example, in India, we grew into the proper stakeholder group from a, a very low base of only two organisations. So I would start by having the group in your mind of, yes, not-for-profit organisations, but also buyers and sellers, government, if at all possible, particularly in countries in Africa where government will want to say, whether we like it or not. Um, the other thing that we've never really cracked properly is the voice of the worker. Now, people seem to be nervous about union involvement, but I, I think it's really important, uh, particularly when you're talking about terms and conditions of employment, uh, labour welfare and wages that you should include the, the voice of the worker. So once you've got an idea as to what your stakeholder group should look like, then you need to choose the organisations first and then almost equally as important, choose the right people within that organisation uh, because some are suitable to these uh, industry-wide gatherings uh, are more suited than others to that type of environment. Um, and ask for help. You know, if inside an industry, if you say I want two representatives from the commercial side, from the users of the commodity, who should who who should I use? Who are the key people that can influence not only their own organisations but others in, in in their part of the industry? And likewise with not-for-profit organisations. The other thing I would say is that don't fear having people around the table with completely different viewpoints. As long as everybody around the table has the same ambition in the longer term, which is to change the lives of people, workers, small farmers, who want to protect the environment and make the world a better place, then that's the important thing. Not that they have different views when you embark on a, on a program. My overall advice for the sustainability programs is although it's important to stay in the moment to uh, address the issues of the day, Please don't forget to look backwards to understand where we came from. Where did we start? How much progress have we made? Because that's where the motivation will come from. And looking forward, make sure your targets are aspirational, yes, but realistic in terms of timescale and size, and make sure that uh, people are prepared to accept progress year on year towards that aspirational target.
As conveners to programs, we have to be able to see the biggest picture possible. And that's often quite difficult for IDH because we come at it from often the the not-for-profit standpoint. But I would encourage everybody who is in one of these programs as a convener to try and stretch themselves to see everything that you can see that may have an impact on the program to avoid these unintended consequences that will inevitably happen if we get something wrong in terms of, say, competitiveness. Look elsewhere. There may have been similar situations in different countries, commodities, organisations, to make sure that you don't miss anything that could be useful in terms of your own journey. But neutrality must be your number one ambition in convening in the future. Thanks for listening. I hope these tips and insights are helpful to you in the coming year. If you're interested in our other podcasts, find us on SoundCloud, iTunes or Spotify by searching for IDH Podcasts. You'll hear back from us next month. 